Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm the president of the Coming Home Network International, where we're broadcasting and we're, we're coming to you over EWTN radio. And if you're hearing me, then I thank you for listening. EWTN, I want to encourage you to support EWTN. You can also hear this program on on the internet, of course, at deepinscripture.com and lots of other ways, uh, as well as YouTube and, and all the wonderful technological advances that our good Lord has given us. Thank you for joining us on this program, though this is uh, an hour in which I invite a guest to share a verse they never saw or a verse that was a, a particular important verse in their own journey, growing closer to Jesus Christ and his church. And our guest for today is Deacon Michael Ross. Uh, Deacon's a friend, and I appreciate these joining us on this program. He is uh, a um, academic dean of the Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio. It's a position which he has held since 2003. Let me give you a little bit of Deacon Ross's background. He was ordained a deacon for the Diocese of Trenton, New Jersey in 1994. He's a convert from Judaism. He and his wife Betty lived in Princeton, New Jersey for 22 years uh, when they moved to Columbus, Ohio, where he has become an assistant professor of theology at the Pontifical College Josephinum. Uh, he's been teaching there since 2002. Deacon Ross has a bachelor's degree from Antioch College, a master's and a doctorate from Columbia University in political science, and a master's and a doctorate from the Catholic University of America in theology. Between 1982 and 94, Deacon Ross was the chief executive uh, officer of three psychiatric hospitals in New Jersey. He served as a deacon at St. Paul's Church in Princeton for nine years before moving to Columbus. Uh, he's... Uh, Fields of specialization are fundamental theology, Trinity, Christology, and theological anthropology. Deacon Ross has also taught philosophy at the undergraduate level and numerous special topics at the graduate level. Over the years, he has taught in deacon formation programs around the country and has given spiritual retreats and convocations as well. He has spoken at NADD Institutes and worked with its leadership to develop programs for new deacon directors. And he's the author of several chapters in edited collections of essays and is finishing a textbook on fundamental theology. So Deacon Ross comes to us today with a lot of background. And the, the passage that he chose is interesting given what he states is one of his specialties, and that's Christology. And this particular passage from Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 is an important text that deals with aspects of Christology. Before we get to the text, I want to remind you that we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, you can call us at 800-664-5110. Or anytime, you can call the Coming Home Network regular number at 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Also, if you go to the website, you can watch this program live on the internet. You can just click on the link and you can see me sitting here in our studio and, and also get a photo of Deacon Ross. So let me read you this passage. It's a great passage. Many scholars consider this a hymn. We'll talk a bit about that. Um, but it's a beautiful passage. And it's one of those short passages that is overflowing with theology, overflowing with inspiration. And we'll probably just scratch the surface today, but Philippians chapter 2, 
5 through 11 is certainly one of the the moments in Paul's creativity when he was being guided in a beautiful way by the Holy Spirit. So let me read. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing me on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock, the Lord is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And for this reason, we fall down before Him in praise and adoration. Tune in when Timothy Van Dam joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about perpetual adoration. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Deacon Michael Ross. Hello, Deacon. How are you, Marcus? Well, it's great to talk to you. I haven't uh, seen you in a while. Yeah, no, it's been a couple of years, hasn't it? Yep, that's right. I had uh, the privilege of uh, teaching a couple courses over at the Josephinum. You you guys relaxed your standards there to let me in for a bit. <laughs> Actually, our new rector, Father Wayner, asked me when I told him I was doing this program whether it wasn't true that you had uh, taught there, and I told him that your teaching was memorable and that <laughs> everyone would surely remember it. Well, my... My hope, and I'm sure this is your hope as a teacher, your hope that what you uh, were able to share with the students during the time uh, had an impact on them and allowed them, gave them tools for, for what they're doing when they left the university. I mean, I, uh, you know, I always felt that I was always teaching de- catechesis to the last year deacons, and I figured. Once they left my class and then were ordained, they would land running somewhere. They mostly have. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to give them practical uh, solutions for Mm -hmm. helping our young people learn their catechesis. It's such an important issue today. Yes, it is. Well, Deacon, um, you've chosen Philippians 2 today. And uh, maybe before we dig into it deeply, 
why did you chose this passage? You know, I mean, there's so many you could have chosen, but uh, why this one? Well, uh, as you said in the beginning of the program when you introduced me, that uh, I'm a convert from Judaism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those uh, months shortly after I was called to the faith and began to read the New Testament seriously, um, I came across um, the letter to the Philippians. Uh, to this day, I think it's uh, among the most, if not the most powerful, of, of mm-hmm. Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, famous hymn, the Christus hymn, in the middle of the second chapter, from five to five to eleven of chapter two, is is not only densely packed uh, with theology, but it touches some notes that were very important in my own journey, and that was that uh, one lives the life of a Christian in imitation of the Christ by service to others, by uh, not by uh, aggrandizing oneself, but by giving oneself over uh, to God and through God to others. And that was a, a, a theme that, that made Christianity... Uh, so powerful for me and added to the grace that called me to the faith and filled it with content and purpose and and I've loved the text ever since it appears relatively infrequently in the in the uh, calendar um, and but whenever it does I I always love not only reading it but uh, preaching it, yeah. Uh, so I'm. It's a wonderful text for me, and it, the letter fits very so beautifully into the letter as a whole. Well, you know, I, you're a deacon, uh, Michael, and uh, uh, there there's a phrase in the very first verse of this, which is before the hymn, in which Paul says, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." This this on Christi in Christ. Mm-hmm is a common theme throughout all of Paul's letters, being Mm -hmm. in him, Mm -hmm. in him. Anyone who's in Christ is new creation. And uh, I want to ask you this because, oh, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago now, I was asked to speak at a deacon's dinner Mm -hmm. at one of the dioceses in America that had maybe the most deacons. And I had been there for an hour or so before the dinner, and to be honest with you, I wasn't that impressed with what I saw. And I heard some stories that there are a few little deacons there that weren't very faithful witnesses. And I changed my talk title. And my, I changed my talk title to, if a deacon ain't going to deek, you got to fire them deacons. <laughs> and I talked about the responsibility of a deacon is showing others what it means to be in Jesus. In other words, you're imitating Paul, who said, imitate me, right? Mm-hmm. That's the job of a deacon, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To, to show, you're, as a deacon, you're basically telling the world, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yeah, Paul urges his followers, uh, the, the letter is an exhortation to um, uh, his followers, to follow him the way he has followed Christ, mm-hmm. and he says in the very beginning in this um, in this beautiful hymn that Christ uh, took on the form of God, um, and, and, and what that means is that he had entered into that Christ comes out of and belongs to the very uh, being of God, and uh, Paul believes that. Uh, in his faith in Christ Jesus, he too uh, is, uh, has some share 
in the very being of God in, in and through Christ. And then he says that his disciples should follow him in the same way. Uh, the, the logic of following here is a kind of an entering into. Uh, it's not just a, a kind of a surface or superficial imitation, but it's entering deeply into mm-hmm. the ethical content, but also the very being of, of Christ. And the deacon is ordained... Uh, in in the service of Christ and, yep. and ought to enter into it. And so the the deacon's agenda ought never to be his own agenda, but ought always to be the agenda of Christ. Um, the agenda of Christ, uh, it, it, I guess, summarized in this most simple way, uh-huh. is the absolute service uh, for the sake of others. It's um, not about yourself. It's always about serving others. And that resonated in my own life, um, and uh, it, it's been a, the framework of uh, the way I've lived my life as a Catholic ever since I converted in 1987. The, uh, I was wondering, in your studying of Philippians, this particular passage, mm-hmm. you were a Jew, converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember in my studies of this passage whether... The themes of this hymn were more addressing his Gentile pagan audience or whether it seems that he was uh, speaking out of his own Jewishness, addressing a Jewish audience, because at first glance, there's a lot of things in this passage that would have made the hair on the back of the necks of the Jewish leaders rise up. Isn't that correct? Yeah, he's addressing those who are already followers of Christ, and he's writing from prison, and he's uh, thanking them for the support they've given him, and he's extending uh, his uh, the graces that have been given to him to his followers. So he's already broken with, and his followers are broken with, the Jewish community, and this is a kind of moral exhortation, mm-hmm. a kind of teaching about how to live in the Christ that these disciples follow and profess. And so uh, this is not really addressing the Jewish community anymore. It's addressing the sort of proto-Christians, the very early Christians who um, Paul himself have, has converted and who are um, not entirely sure about what the implications of following Christ mean. And so he, he's urging his followers who have a kind of uh, almost primitive understanding of what it means to follow Christ uh, in terms of their own lives, how they live their own personal lives and how they're supposed to live in relation to each other. Um, how they're to work together as a community and live as a community of followers of Christ. And he's uh, using Christ as the example uh, of how it is that one ought to live. Christ does not seek equality with God, um, to, uh, something that belongs to him that he should take advantage of, uh, that that he should that Christ gives himself wholly and completely over to the Father's mission for him. So Paul says he's done that in relation to Christ, and so he says, Paul says, that his disciples should do the same by following him in the same way. And so this is a a whole Christian community Mm -hmm. is being urged uh, to live a life 
of of sacrifice for the sake of others uh, in and through the love of God. It's it's a tremendously compelling letter and compelling account of what it means to be a Christian. In my mind, it's the the premier account of what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to draw your attention back to verse 5 again, Mm -hmm. Deacon, and actually challenge you to, to reflect a little bit even as your work that you do at the Josephinum. For those who are in the audience don't have never heard of the Pontifical mm-hmm. College Josephinum, I consider it one of the better of the Catholic seminaries in America. Uh, and you're there as the academic dean. And when I think about that passage, you have a young men that first come there to the college uh, and then go through the theology and then go through their training to become deacons and then priests. And what's what I see beautifully expressed very simply in verse 5, when Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, we see in that passage the mystery of every single person's formation in the sense that there's the mystery between what we receive certainly by grace, yet we have to act on it. Mm-hmm. It's a command, have this mind. But then in the second part, it says it's something we already got. Talk about that in terms of the formation, not only of your seminarians, but of every one of us. Well, there are two things going on there. On the one hand, Paul is saying that you you are already in Jesus Christ uh, through your faith in Christ. Uh, But... Um, merely having faith and not living the life of faith uh, is not enough. There's an implication in this text that faith without works uh, is a kind of uh, empty reality. Because the moral exhortation here is to live out that faith in concrete ways. And so um, the the second point, then, is that you may be of the same mind, uh, and you are in Christ because of your faith in Christ, but uh, you have to let that same mind be expressed in action. And the action, specifically, that's being urged on on, on, by Paul on his disciples, and by extension to all of those who follow Jesus Christ, all of us, uh, is to um, not seek self-interest and self-aggrandizement, much less use one's faith in Christ to to uh, exalt oneself over others, but in fact to serve others in, in, in the rather complete way that Christ himself does. For seminarians, uh, it's a challenge because uh, seminarians are like... Other Americans, we come from a culture which stresses self-advantage and self-interest and um, which looks askance at sacrificing for the sake of others, I, I suppose, except for the military or something. Yep. Yep. And uh, it's, all about, it's all about me. It's all about getting what I can get out of life and, and the advantages and preferences and interests of my immediate family, if I have one. And not about the the total and complete giving of oneself for the sake of others, and that's what that's what the disciples of Christ in this letter are being urged by Paul to do to set aside their interests. And of course, when one sets aside one's own interests, then the whole community is is served. There's an implication of the common good in this letter that. Um, 
by 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 serving uh, Christ and, and through Christ God and setting aside one's own interests, the community has a better chance of, of functioning as a whole, as a unity, and it has a better chance of fulfilling the needs of each individual in relation to that that one ultimate goal. Um, some people think that the letter has an overemphasis on sort of the otherworldly, and it is true that Paul talks about the resurrection and, and has a sort of eschatological uh, tone to it, especially in chapter 3 and a bit of chapter 4. But by the same token, the letter begins with and continues all the way through chapter 2 with this powerful emphasis on living in this world. There's a couple of lines here that I think might be worth your um, listeners to uh, contemplate. In in chapter 1, um, I, in verse 21, he says, For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Hmm. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith. And then he says, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. <laughs> Paul is, is torn in this letter. On the one hand, he wants eternal life. He hopes and prays and actually says he believes that he will receive, he will be resurrected and be with Christ. On the other hand, he's not about to toss it all off and ignore the importance of living in Christ in this world. There's a sort of missionary zeal about that. Translate that into everybody else's life. What that means is, sure, we all want eternal life, but while we're here, uh, we have to live as Christ uh, lived and as Christ gave his life for the sake of others. So I find the letter, that's another thing that resonated for me in the beginning. This is not about, uh, in quotes, pie in the sky. It's about, it's about how living in this world uh, carries with it uh, the obedience that Christ himself showed in relation to the Father, which in turn is related to the possibility of resurrection. Yeah, later in the in chapter three, he says, "Not that I've already obtained this, or right. I'm already perfect." <laughs> Paul is there. One of the nice things about this letter is that Paul uh, reveals uh, personal worries, personal doubts. Um, mm-hmm. He's very, he's very. Um, um, he expresses and tells uh, his followers some things about himself that uh, he doesn't otherwise do elsewhere. And uh, and that's another reason why I like the letter. It's very personal. It is. And this is something that I only learned to appreciate after becoming a Catholic and understanding maybe in a more balanced way the inspiration of Scripture. Because um, the, these... This book and these words and these passages are specifically what the Holy Spirit inspired the leaders of the church both to to write and then later to declare as a part of the canon. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that Paul was a perfect person. 
Uh, not by any means. He admits he's not. Yeah, and sometimes even the things that he expresses in there, we can recognize, eh, you know, that wasn't his best day on a some of the time. Right. You know, like the, the time in Galatians when he's given, you know, he'd given a bad report on Peter. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I could have heard Peter's side of that conversation. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's Paul out of his own frustration right. speaking. Right. But yet, that's what the Holy Spirit wanted us to hear and reflect on. Right. Well, I think one of the things that scholars frequently do with Paul's letters is they judge, make a decision or a judgment about what he's referring to uh, by, by extension of what he actually says. And since this is a moral exhortation to his, to his uh, followers and disciples and a teaching point about how they should imitate Christ and what that imitation looks like, some scholars uh, suppose, and I think it's fair to suppose, that there might well have been a failure to do that, <laughs> do the things that he recommends <laughs> yeah. among some of these disciples. And, oh, yeah. Uh, when Paul is teaching, he's usually teaching because there are folks who aren't doing what he wants to be taught. And so, yeah, the letter has a very human quality about it because it exhibits not only Paul's own deficiencies, uh, but it also addresses uh, the failure of folks to uh, uh, to to, um, right. to uh, deny self-interest for the sake of others, or to or to try to be aggrandizing rather than uh, you know caring for others. We're going to take a break in a moment, Deacon. What a, um, when we come back, um, I want to look at first of all verses six through eight in mm-hmm. a little more detail. One of my favorite quotes from T.S. Eliot is he says the way up and the way down are Mm -hmm. one and the same and in this passage we really see verse six and eight are the way down Mm -hmm. verses nine and eleven the way up are the way up so when we come back let's look at that square all right you're listening to deep in scripture this is your host marcus grode i am joined today by deacon michael ross and you're hearing us on ewtn your global catholic radio network EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Next time on EWTN Live, the Trinity, one God in three persons. It's central to our faith and a great mystery as well. Tune in when Father Mitch talks with Father Thomas Norris of St. Patrick's College about the Trinity, life of God, hope for humanity. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Deacon Michael Ross. And we're looking today at Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. As I said just before the break, kind of guided by T.S. Eliot's comment that indeed we see in this passage in verses 6 through 8, the way down, verses 9 through 11, the way up. Talk about that a bit, Deacon. Well, that's a that's a fairly um, frequently cited uh, a description of the what I would call the architecture of this uh, famous hymn, uh, in the sense that uh, six through eight uh, talks about um, Christ coming down into the world. It talks about 
um, how Christ uh, kneels before the before the Father. How there's a term "doulos," sometimes translated as servant. It's probably better translated as slave. I noticed the, the text that you read uh, earlier in the program used the word servant. Yeah, the but in this text, it's probably stronger to use the word slave, um, mm-hmm. which of course doesn't mean racial slavery uh, or even conquest slavery. It, it means being totally and completely willing to give oneself uh, to the master. Um, and so there's this uh, there's this downward architecture, this uh, kneeling, this uh, self-abnegation, this coming down into the world, this giving oneself away. And then uh, at the very beginning, uh, even unto death on a cross, mm-hmm. even to the point of death, the sort of ultimate downward movement uh, in the in the conventional secular sense. And then in nine, the very first uh, few uh, um, words in the in the next in this verse, therefore God also highly exalted him gave him the name that is above every other name. So you have exalted above uh, heaven and earth, uh, every tongue should confess, glory of God, Father. These are all adjectives and nouns that express an upward movement. Mm -hmm. So um, God rewards, in a sense, the Christ um, by giving him this exaltation that he doesn't himself seek and doesn't himself really need or want. And Paul uses that um, theology to encourage his his followers, uh, in imitation of him, uh, to not worry about the what they're going to get or not, <laughs> hope for exaltation, yep. um, uh, but uh, give themselves over for the sake of others, and God will... One can hope and believe uh, that God will reward you, but the reward is not the purpose of doing the right thing. And that's a powerful message in our society. Uh, Very powerful. Oh, yeah. And and to me, again, when I read passages like this, uh, I almost have to apologize to the audience here because if they've listened to this program often, you know that my mind almost always goes to recognizing the flaws of of a sola scriptura type of theology because in this passage in many ways uh, a lot of the stuff said in here can be taken wrongly unless it's interpreted within a wider tradition and just on the surface deacon um, you know from a sola scriptura standpoint I, I came from a tradition first ordained a congregationalist and then later a Presbyterian and, and we basically didn't see liturgy anywhere in the New Testament and so therefore we did not believe that liturgy was to be intended as a part of worship but this passage is is so liturgical in fact Deacon what it reminds me of I would love to have been there when they recited this in the mass because you know how it is when we do the creed especially during the paschal time that after verse 8 and before they read verse 9 i could imagine them kneeling and being silent in a pause right even death on a cross Mm -hmm. and then there's a pause Mm -hmm. on their knees Mm -hmm. and then verse 9 therefore god has highly exalted him and then they stand again Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so liturgical. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was. This is a, one of the oldest, most ancient texts in the, in the tradition of the Church. Um, it was highly regarded in both the West and the East, relatively early in the history of the Church. Uh, commented on by many of the um, patristic uh, theologians, and continuously commented on throughout the tradition. So it's highly regarded and deep, and and, it, and the interpretation of it is deeply embedded in traditional understandings. So one thing is for sure, uh, to pull a text out of the context of tradition would really violate the history of the letter and the history of the text. Yep. That would be number one. Number two, uh, the, what's going on here is a uh, kind of reference to a heavenly liturgy. Yep. Uh, God is exalted uh, the Christ. Um, the giving of a name is an is a liturgical act. Uh, the bending of a knee is a, a liturgical act, and and all of this is happening in heaven and earth and under the earth. It's obviously uh, liturgical implications. The notion that uh, all of our uh, rites occur, if you will, in the cosmic uh, context. Um, Confession is referred to, uh, the glory of God the Father. It's very hard to avoid the liturgical implications, or context is probably the better way to put it, of this, oh, yeah. of this uh, passage. And I would say the letter generally fits into a liturgical context, because Paul is urging his disciples um, to, to be faithful Christians. And by the time... Uh, this letter begins to uh, appears and begins to uh, um, attract attention. The liturgy is beginning to emerge, and what you have here is Paul urging people to to do not just social good works or um, the good works of ethical and moral behavior, but to the, the complete. Uh, um, framework of, of good works uh, that make up a Christian's life. And this, this is a liturgically very rich text. We got an email, which is very pertinent, uh, Deacon, Kim, comes from Anthony from Grafton, West Virginia, and he writes, I've been told that when Jesus, quote, emptied himself, unquote, that in his self-humiliation he gave up his Godhead, and was no longer, quote, equal to God, unquote. How can I answer my friend? What does Deacon Ross say to this? And this gets us to that, which has a long history, theological history, that even had some uh, heresies attached to it in verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of God. What do you say to our emailer? Well, emptying doesn't mean giving up his divinity. Um, one has to think of this text in a Trinitarian sense. Uh, the, uh, the Jesus Christ is the, the Word, the Son of God, proceeds from the Father eternally. And in his earthly mission, that is to say, his consequences, incarnation, and earthly life, he does not give up or sacrifice or no longer have the status of being the the, the son of the father. Uh, he so what he's done in emptying himself, and there's a lot of disagreement about what the word means. Yeah. Uh, scholars disagree about it. Uh, 
each time a new book comes out. <laughs> I don't take it to mean it certainly can't mean in any legitimate Christian sense that he ceases to be God. What I think it means is that he comes down into the world and takes on all of the uh, the risks and all of the uh, bodily limitations and what have you of earthly life in order to fully identify with who we are. But on the other hand, if if he had given up his full divinity in in becoming fully human, then um, then the resurrection that he is given, if you will, mm-hmm. would not be extended to us because he would then just be another human being. So the the power of the text to appeal to Paul's disciples and the seeking of resurrection, which is such an important theme in the third chapter of the letter, of the letter, which Paul hopes he will have, and which he believes his followers will also have, in and through the resurrection of Christ, would wouldn't be available to them if he if emptying meant that he was uh, ceased to be God, ceased to be divine. So that's really not proper reading of the text, yep. and, and could never be said of the, of the Christian view. The Incarnation does not involve uh, the loss of divinity. It doesn't even involve the suspension of divinity. Well, and even as you say that, to me that, again, reemphasizes the, the flaw of a sola scriptura approach, because in the early centuries of the Church, there were those that took a passage like this and ran with it in a great variety of directions. And yeah, sure. There were, there were those who wanted to stress the humanity over the divinity, but it, the letter doesn't support that right. because the first three verses, 6, 7, and 8, uh, talk about this downward movement, what in the theological literature is called the exodus, um, the exit from God, so to speak, whereas 9, 10, and 11 talk about the reditus, the return to God, and the, the the divinity is not lost in the Exodus, and it's not regained in the Reditus. It's just simply a a uh, completion of a mission that occurs in the return to the Father in heaven uh, as a consequence of the resurrection. And yeah, there were there were folks. Who, I would say anyone who wants to diminish the divinity for the sake of the humanity and reads 6, 7, and 8 as if the Christ somehow uh, ceases to be God and is simply a human being, um, is is engaged in a heretical view yeah. of uh, the Christian view. And uh, even 9, 10, and 11, there were those that almost took an adoptionist view. In other words, you know, there's this, correct. this, this complete separation between God right. and then... Right, highly exalting him and giving him the name above every other name is not an adoption. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, but but yet you and I also see this from the assumption of a wider tradition that we trust is right. guided by the Spirit, and thank God for that, because right. otherwise, um, you know, some of these verses could be taken out of context and misrepresenting our Lord Jesus. Yeah, this is a... Uh, paradigmatically a letter that needs to be read in the context of the tradition of the Church. Um, Certainly it can resonate to individual people's lives. It does have that personal element that I referred to earlier. But by the same token, the letter has meant so much in the history of the Church uh, that to read it 
outside of that context and outside of the way in which it was used later on in the articulation of Trinitarian theology would be a mistake. I mean, for instance, in books one and two of St. Augustine's uh, work on the Trinity, De Trinitate, he consistently refers to this text in order to uh, articulate the view that in his humanity, Christ does not cease to be divine, and in his divinity, he's not otherwise than, uh, than the one who becomes human. So one has to see these two as related to each other. And also, uh, Augustine makes very clear that where Christ is described as subordinate to the Father, and that's a, there's a subordinationist implication to this first half of the text, at least, and uh-huh. perhaps even verse, verse 9 as well, that wherever those subordinationist uh, implications can be found, that what Augustine makes clear is that he is subordinate to the Father in his humanity that he's nonetheless still equal to the Father in his nature and his being. And the text, uh, I think, makes that quite clear, although you're right, it can be misinterpreted. Yeah. In verse in, in the way up, verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes um, a very concerted emphasis on the name mm-hmm. of Jesus. Highly mm-hmm. exalted him, bestowed on him the name, mm-hmm. which is above every other name, mm-hmm that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And then even verse 11, every tongue confess. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you're, you're proclaiming the name mm-hmm. of, of Jesus. And both the Eastern Church as well as the Western Church have always had a very devotional theology of the name. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, if you would, for audience. Yeah, sure. Uh, the naming is a divine act, and it, it has its origins in the in the Abrahamic tradition in the Old Testament, um, where God, with the names that, that children were given, uh, was seen as an extension of a divine, of a divine um, right to name something. And then, of course, God names himself in the most universal way as I am, in the famous passage that, in which uh, he reveals his name to, to Moses. So naming is as is an act of glory, and what's being said here is that uh, that God bestows uh, on Christ um, a kind of um, reward is not the right word a kind of um, kind of sanctifying, if you will, a sanctioning of his of his willingness and perfect freedom to give himself into the world. Uh, a, a, a naming, and, a, and, and, and that's a conveying of the divine glory by the Father uh, to the Son. And the giving of the name here can be thought of almost in processional terms, uh, and in mission terms, um, and it's a consequence of procession and mission. And that's then extended to everybody else. (laughs) Everybody else has their name in the name of Jesus. And uh, and it's through being named that that one shares in the faith uh, that that consists in Christ's faithful obedience to to the Father. Naming has has a connotation of, of pointing out singling out, of separating and distinguishing. 
and the second half, this exaltative reditus, uh, horis- a vertical movement back up to the Father, has a lot to do with singling out the Christ. Hmm. And you can see why Paul would want to do that, because he wants his followers to imitate him, who is imitating the Christ, uh, who has been singled out by God as the, the one sole uh, identifier of how to live in the world, and the one source of the possibility of eternal life. So naming is a is a deeply traditional Abrahamic idea that's mm-hmm. carried forward in this. Deacon, we'll take our, our last break in a moment, but mm-hmm. b- before we go, just to prepare you, we, we did get a, a call in, Larry from Dallas, Texas, um, uh, is enjoying the program and uh, had a question about that first phrase of this. And I'm thinking that's where we ought to come back to after the break because... Sure. If we are to have, if Paul wants us to have this mind among ourselves, right? That's mm-hmm. what he's saying, which is ours by grace in Christ Jesus. Then he gives this down and up pattern of our walk. Mm-hmm. It would seem that the up pattern, verses 9, 10, and 11, are the glory that we will receive mm-hmm. if we are obedient and imitating Christ in verses 6, 7, and 8. Yes. Let's talk about that when we sure. come back. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Deacon Michael Ross, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International, or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at one 800 664 the Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, How Firm is Your Foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Deacon Michael Ross. We're looking at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Deacon, this passage mostly is about Jesus, but verse, verse 5 says it's also about ourselves. Well, verse 5 is the, uh, is the fulcrum on which the text pivots, because the verses 2, 1 through 4, and indeed much of the whole of chapter 1, are about the followers of, of Paul following Christ. And so when he gets to verse 5 and wants to introduce the hymn, um, what he wants to do is connect 
the content of the hymn and the way of life of Jesus Christ to the way of life of those who are his disciples. And it's commonly recognized and probably best stated here, but not only here, that the 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 most important virtue of of Christ that has bearing on following others is obedience, mm-hmm. and that's a an enormously controversial claim in our society because this so much of our society is individualistic and devoted to the idea that. Uh, I ought to be allowed to do whatever it is that I want to do. This notion that freedom has to do with making choices among preferred options uh, as opposed to being a a condition in which one does what is best for oneself, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's not what one wants to do, and in which one is obedient to the truth or what is good for one. Um, that's so so foreign to our culture that this text stands out dramatically as a teaching text in our time, because what Paul is saying is that uh, his followers um, ought to be obedient uh, the way Christ is obedient uh, to to the Father. And that's not an obedience to him, and it's not whimsical either. It's not arbitrary and whimsical obedience. <laughs> It's an obedience to the truth of how one ought to live, which is uh, to live one's life for the sake of others rather than for the sake of one's own personal interest and self-aggrandizement. And the letter uh, has some elements in it in which, about which uh, scholars uh, disagree. There's several references here in which, there's a, in which Paul talks about faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And some would argue that faith in Christ really means faith of Christ, and that the faith of Christ is Christ's faithfulness, his uh, free willingness to be obedient unto the Father. And if that's a good translation, there's disagreement about it, but if that's a good translation, then it goes to the heart of what the letter uh, wants to convey to disciples, whether it's Paul's disciples or anybody who calls himself a Christian today. And that is that life is not about doing whatever you damn please whenever you damn please it. <laughs> it's, about, it's about doing what is, is, is good for you, uh, and what is good for you is to live uh, in the way Christ lived, which is uh, for the sake of others. If everybody lived uh, for the sake of others, then everybody would have their interests satisfied, or at least their proper interests anyway, and not just some at the expense of others. And so uh, the, 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 um, the verse 5 is that pivotal verse that connects the hymn with uh, the general purpose of the letter, which is to exhort uh, disciples of Christ. You know, I was thinking verse 8, um, thinking about the pagan audience that were converts to the church, okay, mm-hmm. and so he's writing this to converts, people who were mm-hmm. either Jews or converts, and mm-hmm. in verse 8, the, the pagan would have um, had in their mythologies things that our modern viewers who've been going to the movies over the last year, all these these movies that are coming out about the Greek gods and mm-hmm. and uh, um, the idea about being found in human form, 
Well, in the Greek mythologies, when they found themselves in human form, they loved it and, and, and went wild practicing the vices of humanity. <laughs> When they found themselves in human form, wow, I've got, you know, I'm no longer up on Mount Olympus. I'm down here amongst humanity and I, you know, I I can do all the stuff they're doing. Right. Well, what's important about that is that the word form here doesn't mean recognizable appearance. It means uh, the being of God. Yes. So though who though he was in the being of god yeah. uh, did not regard equality with god as something to be exploited if you read it as form then you could end up with a uh, docetic or yeah. gnostic kind of heresy and that's not what the text is about it's a it's about the notion that though christ uh, is one in equality with god in being metaphysically speaking yeah. he does does not use that uh, as a, a way to exploit or, or uh, his earthly life, and or to to exercise a grandiose approach to his ministry and mission in the world, or he doesn't set himself up as a god yep. in conflict with uh, God the Father. Uh, yep. Again, expression of obedience. You know, there's disagreement about whether this uh, these verses are by Paul himself. Uh, it's a, one of the older oh, controversies. Right. That's uh, right. Well, some people think uh, that it's actually a text that Paul um, heard and uh, that was talked about before Paul wrote this letter, and that he may well have done some editing, but that it, it's an anterior, uh, an earlier text. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's true. I mean, after all, the letter is is very early. Uh, oh yeah. It's hard to imagine a theologically sophisticated um, set of verses like this uh, being articulated in the 40s. Say. Um, yeah, I just think that comes from scholars who are jealous because they themselves didn't write such a beautiful <laughs> hymn. They can't well, imagine. It certainly is a beautiful piece of writing. <laughs> it is. In I'll fact, say this: it stands up there with the rest of Jewish writing. Oh, well, there you go. Paul, Paul is, and he, he's a convert uh, to, to Christianity. He's a Jewish follower of Christ, yep. but he does have all of those uh, Jewish skills. <laughs> and, and right there in the center of it, uh, rather than we look at our own humanity and, and deciding we're free to run with whatever we want to do, he talks about those key virtues of humility and obedience, which yes. are the keys right. that we are to imitate him as yes. we imitate following Paul. Yeah. Deacon, thank you so much for joining us on Deep in Scripture. My pleasure, as always. Well, I'd love to we'll have you back another time, maybe another sure. theme. And please extend my greetings to the, our friends there at uh, Josephina. I certainly will. All right. Thanks, Deacon. And thank all of you for joining us on this program. I hope this has been encouragement to you. Philippians 2, 5 and 11 through 11 is a great set of passages for you to pray on. And then by grace, ask God to help you follow. God bless you. See you next week.